Hello and welcome to the Art Monthly talk show. I'm Chris McCormack, Associate Editor of Art Monthly, and today I'm joined by writer and lecturer Lan Absogogati and Rebecca Jarman, who is Associate Professor of Latin American Studies at the University of Leeds. Rebecca will discuss the current art scene in Sao Paulo, but first we begin with Lan, who also has two publications just out, and hopefully we have a chance to discuss those too, um, and also has contributed a brilliant essay about the seeming absence of critical, critical debate in figurative painting, of which there is a seeming abundance of. Lan, we have spoken a few times in the past about this particular subject and the rise of figuration, so I wondered if it might be good to start at the beginning again. Uh, and which point, at which point, which point have you noticed uh, the absence of critical thinking in painting, and uh, and also, or, or when you notice the absence of critical thought itself in that subject? I think my interest in this topic kind of begins with actually doing some research myself into a group of artists that have loosely been described as the Monster Roster Group. They were a group of artists that were based around Chicago in the 1950s. The most well-known artists associated with the group were Leon Golub and um, Nancy Spiro, H.C. Westerman, um, and uh, sort of briefly associated with them as well. And they um, sort of staked out a position around the mid-1950s, so the point at which uh, abstract art had kind of risen to ascendancy in the United States. And as Serge Gibo, the, the art historian famously put it, New York had stolen the idea of modern art. So mm. this group of artists working in Chicago in the 1950s were working in mainly a kind of figurative tendency um, that varied from uh, indebtedness to surrealism and expressionism um, to often kind of quite odd or eccentric forms of figuration that that um, indicate some of the sort of twists and turns that, that would um, happen in Chicago through the 60s and 70s with other groups of artists like the, the Harry Who, um, uh, people like Christina Ramberg and Ed Pashka. And the reason why I was interested in this group was really to think about what was at stake in their claim for figuration at this point. They um, aligned themselves with a kind of quite, I would say, for the most part, middle of the road humanism. But for someone like Nancy Spira and Leon Golub, obviously their career develops in ways where they, their art becomes more explicitly politically committed with their involvement in anti-Vietnam War activity and in Spiro's case, um, feminist um, politics. So I was kind of interested in how they, they position themselves as against a dominant current of abstract art at that point in the mid 50s where it's risen to ascendancy and are kind of staking their investment in the figure as connected to uh, a progressive politics and this really you know i didn't end up doing all that much work on this but it sort of became a um i suppose a sort of like placeholder for for thinking about this tussle over the political stakes of abstraction versus figuration, as has happened at various points throughout the 20th century. So in the 1930s, um, around what's often described as the cultural front, so the communist cultural movement in the United States, there's similar arguments about whether abstraction or um, figurative painting, usually realism, were the more was the, was the more politically committed way 
to paint um mm. in the 60s around the black arts movement there's you know these kind of quite well known debates between someone like frank bowling um and and other artists around uh, realism versus abstraction uh in relation to the civil rights movement and black power um so you have these kind of different i suppose I think in the article, I call them sort of flashpoints of debate um, in the 80s or late 70s, early 80s. Benjamin Bucklow, you know, basically calls the turn to neo-expressionism proto-fascistic. He sees it as completely reactionary. And so it seemed to me that there had always been some kind of um, debate around the uh, a, a kind of renewed tendency towards figurative painting at every point in which that happened throughout the 20th century after the ascendancy of abstraction. So once you have a kind of ascendancy to return to the figure has a sort of stakes around it. Yet what I noticed with the kind of ballooning expansion of figurative practices over, I would say, around the last decade or so, is that there wasn't all that much discussion along those lines. There was the criticism of uh of what what alex greenberg called zombie figuration so you know he thought of, he was thinking about this in terms of like a, a kind of zombie like production for the market where there was a proliferation of more and more uh painting within this genre obviously covering a range of tendencies from again thinking back to surrealism to realism but but he didn't really explicitly articulate this in relation to what I see as the central um, node around which this debate took shape in the 20th century, which is around the stakes of the human, around who gets to count to be a human, over who gets included within that category, who gets marginalised from that category. And for many of those debates that I've already indicated through the 30s, 50s, 60s, and even the 80s, we're thinking about neo-expressionism, that's what was at stake, is what painting the, the painting people meant in relation to political struggles around uh, how the human is, is defined, understood, um, and oppressed and that didn't really seem to be a feature within much of the discourse around the return of figurative painting so that's essentially what I've tried to point out in in this piece I guess. Yeah and in a way you kind of bracket off certain sections within there we've got both like the idea that the market comes in which I think is a key part in this conversation around the ways in which identity forms a kind of capital that is then traded and remade through these kinds of the, the current historicization of the body and the figure. Um, mm. Maybe that seems like one huge nugget of thinking. <laughs> sort of, yeah. Um, and then second to that, we have the kind of actual artists themselves. And maybe we talk about each of the artists in some way. And I think we group you group together certain kind of artists too. So we have like Lufretino, Doran Langberg, and offering a certain kind of queer subjectivity and other kinds of artists as well, bringing other kinds of ideas around black identity and so on as well. And there's a whole other kind of stretch of thinking around that. Um, effectively, we could talk about many, many aspects of all of these things. And I'm wondering what the best way to do that would be, because I think effectively, we see a kind of splintering and a kind of silo of identity ha happening here. Um, and maybe that is something as well to discuss. Do you have thoughts around that or which way to go forward? 
Yeah, that's a very, and that's a really interesting, um, I mean, that's a really interesting way of putting it, like this kind of siloing of different subjectivities um, across this field. And um, I mean, I don't know whether that, you know, what, 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 how, how to, how to kind of identify how that happens. Like, obviously, that on one level happens through institutional processes that surround the production and circulation of art. So the the description of people like Fratino, Langberg, um, TM Davy as a sort of queer figurative painting is something that I noticed had generally emerged within criticism, although um, uh, there was this exhibition in New York. I can't remember the exact title of it, but it was like looking back to the history um, certain histories around MoMA that that's sometimes been seen as a parallel to to contemporary art. So so sort of like trying to situate contemporary queer figurative painting in, in relation to precedents like people like Paul Cadmus and so on. Um, so that siloing, I think, happens, you know, it happens at a sort of institutional level through curating and through criticism. Um, I'm sure it's also an effect of the market, but I I don't have such a I don't know. I think that it's more complicated to think about how that happens at a sort of market level. But I suppose the interesting question is that comes out of thinking through that siloing is how much is that also a feature of the the moment of of making a work or like how you conceive of what you're making when you when you when you paint a. a when you make a painting that is then kind of directed into one of these these sort of silos, and um, I think that's a really complicated question because I I suppose there's not really one answer, and I think it's also one of those things that must become a kind of like feedback loop between those processes of institutional siloing and the, the market, and then what's getting made because. Presumably, at some point, if you're an artist whose work gets uh, gain attains a certain degree of success within one of those sort of um, siloed like fields of institutional recognition or or, or like market um, success, then there's a, an incentive to continue making more painting that looks like that. Mm. Um, like there's an incentive because there's a market that's kind of created around that. Or, or a um or a field of discourse that's created around that and um i guess that's something that you know kind of i don't know it's i think it's probably fairly inescapable and i understand why yeah. why artists would would work like that but to me that kind of indicates a diminishing of any experimentation with how your work might be received or how your work might be read or viewed. Like it's a kind of almost um, second guessing who this work is for that then feeds into the form and subject of what you're painting. And that's something that I find kind of, um, well, I, I guess I find it kind of depressing because it seems to close down the notion of how how a, how a work might be read or how it might um 
open on to different sorts of experiences and you know I'm saying all this with a kind of awareness that I may sound like I'm arguing for some sort of like universal reception yeah. of the art object that anyone can experience it anyone can access it which I'm not suggesting that but rather that you know where 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 a painting in its it, 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 it where where a sort of field of painting enters into such close proximity with the process of institutional siloing or like ready-made market audiences, it seems very um, compromised to me how that kind of painting can work in ways which undo the sort of strictures of of, of subjectivity or um, the the kind of um, ways in which those infrastructures of of institutions in the market like tend to reproduce things that are not that great in terms of hierarchies of like who gets to be included in them um and this i guess relates to my point which is not you know and i think i've tried to make this point carefully is that i'm not presenting a critique of representation you know yeah. um uh, like just on its own but a critique of where representational forms of politics um enable an occlusion of of any any kind of political struggle which is attempting to undo like the workings of an institution of the market mm. but rather you know is a kind of like window dressing exactly um, i think that's the feeling it's, it's somehow it feels there's a kind of in a, a space around some of these works that actually don't touch any kind of critical debate around anti-capital or any position yeah. or actual a degree of uh, solidarity in terms of a position outside of capitalism in yeah. fact they're only conjoining or adapting to the conditions and i it's hard to have that argument because i think ultimately i agree that on one level this is about an expansionist idea of actually developing what has been otherwise occluded and or repressed so it's a kind of, there is a kind of uh, complexity that has to be acknowledged through these kinds of twists um so yes it's a, it's a very delicate conversation in a way mm. um that has to be had and i think some of these works i actually do really like you know i actually which, which you know, ones i want to know which ones do you really like <laughs> and what <laughs> Oh, you know, I actually do like T.M. Davey. I know that I do. Yeah, no, no, I want to tell me why. I know. I I was sort of wondering that when I was because like I know you have you. Um, you know, there's something about these sort of heightened color, fantastical scenarios. I think if I was offering a defense of it, I would say, you know, there is a kind of um, you know, there's an, an inbuilt melancholia for me, like within the imagery, which yeah. is to say you know looking at mm. it through a sort of post-aids lens of like what's been robbed or what's been taken away in terms of the fantasy of uh a kind yeah. of hedonism or exalted state of uh yeah fantasy of coupledom or enjoyment yeah uh, i think that's yeah. kind of, you know there's a kind of tension in the work a tiny you could argue uh maybe i'm being over yeah but no no i um, i think no, finish, finish. Yeah, I was just going to say, gonna say something, like, even like this, the location of Fire Island is such a kind of uh, mythological, important, you know, mm. both of its hedonism and also its kind of trauma. So I don't know, yeah. you know, but I, there's some elements to that work that I can kind of buy into. Um, yes. Yeah, more, I kind of, yeah. I, I almost find his work the most intriguing out of the, the artists yeah. that I mentioned there because it's, 
Uh, yeah, I find it more intriguing than someone like Louis Fratino or Doran Langberg's yeah. work because of the, I think I say in the piece that I, I find the more, like the, the the ones that veer towards, yeah, these super saturated colours, the sort of like reference to mythology, um, they start to be more interesting to me. Like they're less... Um, I don't know. Well, well, like I say in the piece, I, I think the first time I saw the works, I was like, these, this, these works are kind of like a problem for art history um, because of the way in which they grapple with um, a kind of kitsch. And I think it is a kind yeah. of kitsch. Um, and so that there is something there, perhaps. But I think for me, the... Uh, yeah, I think there's a sort of limit to how interesting they are where they're where they're more making a kind of claim towards representation so it's so like the painting there's a painting I think that's printed in the article of like a satyr yeah. in a forest like that I can sort of almost get on board with you know yeah. um because it's la like leaning towards some realm of fantasy like, like you say that then something more well, it, it demands a bit more thinking from the viewer in like, how do you look at that and, and how do you respond to that? Whereas like the ones that are these sort of almost like very respectful portraits of people he knows. I'm just like, I I, I don't I, I don't know. They're, they're too polite or something like yeah. they're, they're There's a kind of like light form of like representational politics yeah. that I just don't have much interest in. Um and I do think that there's also something to say here about pleasure. And um, I don't, you know, I think I also make this point at, at, at some point in the article about, um, I really wish I could find the exact line, but the I, I, I say something, let me try and find, just give me one second. Um, yeah, I, I say something like, uh, the orientation of a significant portion of contemporary figurative painting is towards propertied forms of self-possession, less a thinking space and more a self-actualization space, marked by shiny exteriors and Instagram-ready subject matter that prioritizes photogenic forms of, of pleasure. And um, I think that what I, maybe what I want to, to kind of elaborate on a little bit there is that I'm not, arguing against the notion that art should sometimes provide pleasure. I, I don't want to sound like a really kind of uh, miserable old art historian who's like, if it's not real art, if it makes you, you know, feel, uh, have some kind of enjoyment. Yeah. That That's not my point, but rather thinking about what kind of pleasure that is. Mm. Um, and I think like where you're indicating you're you're talking about something like where pleasure like lapses into hedonism or or a kind of or like has a relationship to hedonism or where it's more um ecstatic or something like i'm i'm interested in that where pleasure has some relationship to um a destabilization of the self because mm -hmm. i think that's where like I don't know for me like that that and I don't have like a sophisticated way to put this but for me that's like where pleasure really um has a sort of potential to to also be political is um or 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 to trans to be transformative let's say is where it involves some sort of destabilization of of who you are 
and that's I'm interested in that I'm not interested in forms of visual pleasure which kind of re-inscribe one's own sort of sense of self or Mm. a a sense of self that one would be aspiring to because that to me seems too close to the forms of pleasure that we're constantly being asked to sort of um reinforce or buy into or, or 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 kind of um aspire to I don't know if that makes sense yeah yeah completely I think it's the it's the ways in which seduction has been monetized in a way um and somehow these parts of you know figuration can be easily seductive um yeah and easily consumed I think it's the way in which Mm. the the consumption of the work is actually it it doesn't really demand anything further than a kind of instant kind of sugary hit you know Yes, exactly. And I suppose that's where those TM Davy paintings, which are more kind of like wild or lapsed towards something that's almost like totally like it's slightly psychedelic or kitsch, is that I think because they don't really, you know, they do kind of go so far beyond what is viewed as um, acceptable forms of like visual pleasure in dominant discourses of like fine art, Mm -hmm. like mainly those produced by art history then those become almost slightly like interesting to me yeah um because they're that I guess have a relationship to the popular which is maybe interesting whereas the ones which are just kind of like nice paintings of people he knows with candles they just yeah they to me they look like Jack Vetriano paintings you know they look like something you find in like a um cafe in like a suburban town or something and (laughs) maybe they get some (laughs) sorry that's really (laughs) I'm gonna get some hate for whatever um (laughs) but you know they look they look like they look very middle brow is I suppose what exactly it looks like a kind of middle brow um uh sensibility that that you know is sort of polite and it relates to some sort of like middle middle brow or like um very conservative notion that oh this is good because this guy can really paint Mm. and I'm just like why why do we care about that at this point you know um yeah I think one other strand as well in in the text is about the the closeness to the material that is being depicted so in terms of like one's possession of the identity that's being depicted, the closeness and the relationship that is being exposed or one of sameness being presented. Do you want to talk? Mm. I mean, it's a quite a, again, it's quite a contentious space to in a way open up, but I think, um, do you want to say anything about that? I mean, it's particularly you argue it through the Donna Schultz. um, Yeah. Yeah, so I make this argument where, uh with the the criticisms that were directed in the process around Dana Schutz's painting open casket which began in around the 20 um 2016 2017 oh, yeah. um I sort of mentioned how she her justification for for painting that subject revolved around her saying you know she could relate to um the mother of Emmett Till because they're both mothers you know so so this one um relationship of like 
there's one aspect of shared experience. Motherhood is seen as sort of it's it sort of like sweeps aside every other form of difference between mm. her and Mamie Till, um, which obviously that was very very heavily criticised, and you know. Um, I don't want to go over that whole discussion again, but I I sort of like uh, take off from from that argument around uh, a shared identity as a, a mode of like legitimation to 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 talk about to 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 share a kind of subjectivity or to share a political position. I have a a kind of critique of that um, where I draw upon. Uh, the writer Robin Kelly's thinking about solidarity. So there's this amazing um, essay that he wrote, uh, or is it an interview? I can't remember now. But he, it, it's called something like, or like the headline is called "Solidarity is not a, a market exchange," mm -hmm. um, and he talks about this in relation to how a shared identity should not be a precondition for meaningful forms of, of solidarity within the context of political struggles. So he talks about this, and um, for anyone that, that doesn't know his writing, he's a like important Black Studies scholar working in America who's written things like a biography of Thelonious Monk and, and also written this book Freedom Dreams, which is about the kind of radical... Um, aesthetic imaginaries of around um the civil rights movement and, and beyond um and he talks about this idea of solidarity as not a market exchange and a kind of criticism of the notion that you must share something with someone in order to meaningfully relate to them or, or like progress a form of political struggle with them by saying that you know where he's teaching um histories of slavery he he is trying to get his students to think about the fact that although there there will be some shared, there will be a kind of, you know, if we take up um Christina Sharp's idea that we're in the still in the wake of the transatlantic slave trade, there's a kind of continuity or shared ground of experience that that may exist there between, say, young um black people living, studying in an American now and um the experiences of the enslaved and similarly for say white students in the class they also need to think about their relationship to these histories but he's also trying to think about like in order to recognize the um the importance of those histories for thinking through contemporary political struggles you don't have to share everything you know like nobody in that classroom is living in the ninth, like 18th century yeah. you know so he, and he's putting this in the sense of like actually what's really important is to think across those those kind of differences of experience and enter into forms of struggle and solidarity with people that you don't necessarily share anything with. Um, and I think this kind of relates to, without getting too sort of theory heavy, I think this also relates to Sodia Hartman's critique of empathy, which she she um, writes about in her book Scenes of Subjection, where she talks about how she she gives this example of uh, a slave owner, uh, no, a abolitionist writing to his slave owner brother, and he writes this letter to his brother 
to try and persuade him to, you know, join the abolitionist movement, stop being a slaveholder. And in order to try and make this case, he 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 describes himself in the position of the enslaved. So in order to try and provoke his brother's empathy, he 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 puts himself, a white abolitionist, in the position of the enslaved and says something like, imagine if it were me, you know? And Hartman has this critique of that because she says, you know, effectively what that involves is a sort of um, erasure of the, the actual experience that's going on there yeah. and a substitute and, and a kind of notion that in order for the horror of this to be legible, you can't actually recognise the horror um, as it's existing. You can only recognise that horror if you put yourself in that position. But rather, we should all be striving to recognise like forms of suffering that, that are beyond our experience and acting in solidarity with them where it doesn't affect us. And that's something that I feel very, very um, committed to. And I guess, you know, to bring this back to the topic of painting, um, I, yeah, I guess I'm curious or I wonder about how some of the articulations of the, the representation of identity within recent figurative practices are able to do that kind of work. Mm. Um, that, that's a question I have. I don't know. I think sometimes it probably can do that kind of work, but um, I don't know whether, yeah, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure. Sorry, that's sort of slightly yeah. tailed off. Um, no, no, I think because in a sense, it is that complexity of what we're dealing with you know, which is mm. these forms of empathy and representation, and also then the political consequences of how these things are manifested in terms of a representational field. And also yeah. then the institutions themselves, um, and then the market around that. And I think all of these mm -hmm. dovetail in certain different ways that are both somehow coherent, but also contradictory on one level. Um, and particularly through the hypermarket a hyper machine of, especially I think of US, the US industry around identity politics, which is very strong in terms of its, uh, the way in which it produces its effects, uh, much more so than I would say Europe, but, um, but then also that's also interesting and maybe seem Europe seems behind some of the conversations that are happening in the US as well. So it's like, you know, it's it's these kinds of debates that are really live and I think you're right to identify how Actually, there's not a kind of a deeper conversation about what's happening. Um, yeah, I think that's really like all I yeah. want to do with this yeah. piece is I don't feel like I wanted to write. I didn't really want to write something that was like a kind of hot take on this subject. Yeah. And I hope it doesn't come across like that. It's more I wanted it to act as like an opening for more mm. conversations because, you know, it's something that I... I suppose I'm like encountering a lot um, and thinking about a lot in terms of uh like often in relation to teaching or working in an art school and seeing the kind of work that's being made and trying to think through debates around representation and politics mm -hmm. with with students and um other people so um yeah that that's kind of my intention really is to like open this up and be like why aren't we having this kind of conversation about the stakes of this work yeah. um and to not have that conversation like what does that mean like I, I think the the problem with not having that conversation is that there's no kind of critical attention towards the way in which the like excess and um a dominance of this type of work as a form of like institutional window dressing hasn't really been um 
best to the extent it should be. And Lon, just to end, you have a new book out. Do you want to say the title? Is it or yeah? Yes, yes. Um, uh, I have a new book out called "What We Do Is Secret: Contemporary Art and um, the Antinomies of Conspiracy." Um, uh, is out with Sternberg Press. There's a foreword by Hannah kind of Black, um, and I the book is is an attempt to address aesthetic and intellectual affinities between recent art and conspiracy. And my kind of aim with the book is to propose a theory of conspiracy that's not primarily concerned with just conspiracy theory, but thinking about how um, conspiracy relates to a range of, of practices. So from the politics of post-internet art to um, uh, Katie Nolan's work, her right. security fit sculptures to um, the work of Emma Abassi Ocon. So yeah, the book is out now. And uh, yeah. I look forward to reading it. <laughs> I really do. I look forward to reading your new book. Okay, Lon. Well, thank you so much for joining. Um, always a thank pleasure. You, I wish we were in yes. person rather than on Zoom, but um, hopefully I'll soon. I'll see you soon. I'll see you soon. All right. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, and moving on, we are joined by Rebecca Jarman, who is Associate Professor of Latin American Studies at the University of Leeds. And her latest book, Representing the Barrios, is out in May with the University of Pittsburgh Press. And she's kindly written a piece about the Sao Paulo art scene. Um, and you were in Sao Paulo earlier this year. And uh, it provides a great overview of the activities that are currently going on and some of the political context in which uh, art is being produced in the city. Um, I wonder if we could begin by just kind of loosely laying out the kind of the groundwork of Sao Paulo. I know you're well known and you've got good knowledge of the field there. So maybe just say a little bit about the city and the context in which, you know, you're arriving in. Okay. Yeah. Um, so sometimes it's helpful, I think, to think about Sao Paulo in, in conjunction with Rio. And a lot of people will often make the analogy of New York, Los Angeles. So right. Rio would be Los Angeles, Sao Paulo would be New York. So Rio, you've got this very laid back feel. It's on the beach, it's sunny, people are super relaxed. A lot of artsy kind of film industry sector are based in Rio. Sao Paulo is much more of a concrete jungle. Um, it in some ways takes itself a little bit more seriously. So it's home to the finance sector, political elite, um, journalists, a lot of journalists are based there. And of course, the, the art scene in terms of visual arts and plastic arts, the film stuff, a lot of the film stuff happens in, in Rio. Right. Um, so it's a fairly welcoming city. Um, it's a little bit tricky to navigate. It's absolutely huge. Um, so where I was based, it was right in the centre and actually it was superb for access to all the galleries. It, mm -hmm. I could walk to most of the places that I visited, which was a coincidence. Um, uh, you know, the city is it's sprawling and it can take hours to get anywhere because of the traffic and so on. So mm -hmm. I was very lucky to have that kind of um, that accessibility to to the galleries that, that I was um, visiting. And I was staying in an area called Jardines. Um, it's a pretty uh, leafy area. Um, yeah, lo lots going on, lots and lots going on. I was full for choice in terms okay. of, you know, the amount of galleries and museums that that I could have could have visited in, in a short space of time. Yeah, and you kind of begin the piece describing how art is a collective act. And in a way, kind of this idea sort of underpins a lot of your 
your thesis in a way or your argument around the kind of the exhibitions that were on show. Do you want to say a little bit about what led you to those thinkings and what unfolded through that methodology or those kind of ideas? Yeah. So um I guess I was already in that kind of uh, space of thinking about uh, solidarity and collectivity and networks because I was there as part of a network event as well. Um, it's an, an academic collective that that, that I'm part of, uh, which is called Women Researching Violence. And a lot of that research is about grassroots activism and uh, solidarity between people who either research violence or um, uh, are victims of or, or are battling against different manifestations of violence and they often use uh, forms of mutual support, mutual aid, um, knowledge sharing, uh, advocacy to kind of battle some of these issues collectively. So my headspace was already kind of there okay. anyway um, but even so you know when people talk of the of the art scene it, it very much is about kind of um, the collective um, and all of the exhibitions I saw coincidentally, apart from one or two, they, they kind of had that that feel to them where it wasn't um, necessarily one solo figure that was being featured. And even in the case uh, where there may have been a solo figure that was more prominent than others, it was always kind of placed within movements of, of artists who um, either produced work to be exhibited collectively or were part of intellectual movements that kind of fed off each other. And so, um, you know, even though they might have a, a kind of singular style that would then, to be fully understood, have to be placed in a broader context of um, uh yeah, this, this kind of um, uh, shared interest in, in, in a certain theme uh, um, or, or issue. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's kind of how I got to thinking about it. And I'd also recently been to Malaga, so I mentioned that in the piece. Oh, yes. And had done lots of that. I was actually researching something related to, to Picasso there. And so it was a very striking contrast to go to a city where everything there is you know revolves around Picasso it's the Picasso museum it's his his house of his birthplace I went to an exhibition at the Bullring there about Picasso you know it's it's he's mm. so kind of dominant and then of course you go to a city Sao Paulo is very different to Malaga in lots of ways where um you have this this emphasis on what we can create in conjunction with with others and kind of bouncing ideas of others which was really missing I think from some of the the stuff that I'd seen just a week or two weeks um, prior in, in Malaga, so. And you pick up on several exhibitions, certainly about Indigenous people and even violence towards Indigenous people. Do you want to say a little bit, is that, was that part of the research projects that you were taking there to look at that particular aspect of violence against women? Was that? Uh, no, it's not part of my own research, um, but I have a lot of colleagues who are working on this issue at the moment, um, mm. colleagues at Leeds, I have a colleague called Thea Pittman, for example, who, who runs a project on uh, decolonising art in a Brazilian context, and so it was largely uh, based off conversations with her and exposure to her work before, before going, and then um, other colleagues too who are um, very much kind of tapped into this issue um, and so it's although it's not my area of expertise I was speaking to them before I went you know where should I go what's good to see what you know what's kind of going on in the art scene at the moment and a lot of it was their recommendations um, but even if they hadn't given me those recommendations it was pretty difficult to escape that in a way you know this is a big feature in the Brazilian art scene at the moment um, 
uh, I mentioned the uh, Museum for Indigenous Cultures in my piece, which is solely and exclusively dedicated mm. to uh, different forms of um, Indigenous artistry. Um, but beyond that, you've got other galleries, the um, IS that, that also had features of um, uh, Indigenous curation and, and exhibitions. And these conversations are about um, agency and empowerment and kind of giving platforms and space to a sector of the Brazilian, Brazilian population, which is very numerous, in fact, um, but historically has been excluded from museums, marginalised by museums, represented as the subject of art, but not, you know, the active um, agents of, of creating art. Um, and now, uh, largely because uh, a lot of the issues that they have historically voiced concerns with, such as deforestation, pollution of the Amazon and so on, these are issues that have really come to the foreground over the past decade or so. Um, that's also kind of gone hand in hand with um, museums concertedly making an effort to grant space to uh, different Indigenous curators and so on, uh, to have some of these discussions uh led by the people who are really expert in in the fields of um uh climate change in the amazon because of course they're living most directly with the, with the consequences maybe let's describe some of the works that are then on show um either specifically related to this subject or if there's any others that you prefer to talk about but it'd be quite interesting for the listener to maybe get a sense of some of the works that you're talking about here have you got a mm -hmm. in mind that you could yeah yeah so um the um exhibition at the IMS was called Singu, um, Contactos, and the Singu is a, is a river basin area. So um, all of the works was uh, exhibited were um, somehow related to the geographic region of the river basin. And historically, that institution had uh, created uh, different forms of, of, of artworks, photographs and films predominantly, um, uh, made in, in in that area it's a national park a little bit similar to a, a reservation but but the, as we might think of as a, um, an indigenous reservation in the states but the politics behind this area is slightly different in brazil but but we might compare it kind of simplistically to a reservation and so historically the ims had, had made uh lots of different forms of artworks in this reservation but largely it was these kind of artworks were produced by the predominantly white middle class uh, intellectual sectors who would travel on behalf of the gallery, make a documentary, take some pictures, make some films and then leave again. Mm -hmm. um, without necessarily this being a dialogue, you know, it was a kind of a one way, a one way street. And what they were trying to do, what, what this, this latest exhibition tries to do is take some of these materials back. So it exhibits the materials in question, um, firstly, so you can see the stuff that was produced in the 40s, the 1970s, 1980s, and then take some of this material back to create a conversation with some of the people from the Singu region um, and allow them to then make their own films or photographs in response to um, these materials that were created about them. And what I really liked about this uh, exhibition was the diversity of the materials that were produced. So I mentioned in the article, um, a piece uh, about uh, some documentary footage that was taken in, I think it was the 80s, about a, a particular leader of a community and they show this footage um, in the community and the granddaughter of this leader takes new filmic footage of the people watching this old footage and then interview mm -hmm. everybody about that experience. And so um, through those interviews, you kind of get the sense of, of the importance of filmed is used for cultural heritage and preserving traditions that are at risk of being 
um, lost and even at a kind of metaphysical level, allowing the dead to speak, allowing the dead to kind of remain active and, and being connected with the, the past. But some of the examples were much more comical or lighthearted. So there was another one where um, uh, a community reenacted um, uh, some of this footage that kind of often comes out where I remember a few years ago, there was some footage of drone footage of some uh, indigenous uh, communities in Brazil who uh, saw the drone and started shooting arrows at the drone as if it were some, you know, the, the news coverage was kind of comparing as if, you know, insinuating that they thought it was an animal or an alien or whatever. And so this was a kind of reenactment of that that kind of encounter, that kind of contact, but done through a very satirical lens. So um, it was uh, largely men who were reenacting this, this um, uh, experience of seeing an aeroplane and joking about saying, oh, is, is it a monster? It's gonna come and eat us. And then uh, trying to shoot it down and, and then saying that, um, uh, that it had crashed nearby and that it was a giant bird and so on. But clearly it was all quite tongue in cheek. So. Mm. The exhibition, although it was serious, it also kind of allows a character of um, its creators to come through to show that, you know, um, uh, there's a sense of humour there, there's a sense of lightheartedness and there's a sense of, you know, not taking it all so, so seriously. And also, I'm sort of interested to sort of pick up something about the new political climate in Sao Paulo and Brazil more generally, I guess, um, you know, how the, I'm sure you have pre and post impressions of Lula and Bolsonaro. I'm sort of interested to hear your take on that and if those effects are being felt in the art world, do you feel they're being represented in a different way, etc. Mm -hmm. Um, so this is, uh, um, as in many polarized contexts, polarized political contexts, quite a um, complex dynamic that I'm going to have to simplify yeah, or course. characterize. So, you yeah. know, um, no, no. I mean, it, it's it's just the nature of some of these issues. Sometimes, you know, polarization often is a result of these kind of characterizations. Mm -hmm. So, on the one hand, you've got Lula, who was formerly in power. He was um, uh, imprisoned uh, on charges of corruption. He is linked to the left, uh, he uh, is linked to um, unionism and the rise of uni unionism in, in Brazilian politics um, and was part of the, the pink wave, which some of your listeners may be familiar with, the, the rise of uh, left politics in Latin America from the beginning of the 21st century for that kind of first decade or so. So Lula was one of one of those guys. Um, he was in power for, for the first few years of the 21st century. And then, like I say, he was imprisoned on, base, on the basis of corruption. Um, Bolsonaro in the interim came to power. He's associated with the military, with the extreme right, um, very intolerant of uh, um, diversity. So has made very homophobic comments, has no concern with deforestation or the Amazon. And in fact, uh, very much encouraged the expansion of industry in endangered areas. Uh, and has said that um, uh, conservationism or protectionism is is just a total waste of time. So he is voted out in the most recent round of elections, and Lula comes back, and and his his emphasis now is on uh, protecting the Amazon, but also in in trying to address some of the the polarization that has emerged between these two figures as well. So you have people who are very very loyal, diehard Lula supporters, and equally have people who are very loyal diehard Bolsonaro supporters without a whole lot of dialogue between mm. these two halves of the population often. 
So um, those associated with Lula typically, and again, I emphasize I'm, I'm simplifying here, but typically uh, are also equated with identity politics in that um, you have in, in Brazil, as in other parts of the world, um, a rise of, of issue-driven politics whereby people are concerned with um, uh, Afro-Brazilian rights, with LGBTQ plus rights, with uh, uh, the indigenous issues that we've discussed, with climate change, deforestation and so on. And they are typically associated with Lula and the Lula sphere. And then with the Bolsonaro sphere, you have people who are uh, generally very suspicious of identity politics and, and claim that a lot of it's very reactionary and that um, uh, you've got kind of conversations that, that revolve around the same idea of, of snowflakes um, that, that we, we kind of are often exposed to here as well. And so one of my, I suppose, um, preoccupations when I was looking around these galleries, and as I mentioned in the article, I'm more affiliated with, with I guess, the Lula camp and the Lula perspective, and I very much welcome um, initiatives to uh, diversify the, the art sphere. Um, but I did wonder whether uh, some of these art conversations, very often they sought to address or foster unity and understanding and dialogue and conversation. And I guess I was left thinking, well, who is this conversation with? Is this happening in an echo chamber? Are we preaching the, to the converted? Mm -hmm. And does that then risk if we've got the polarization of the art scene? Because of course the art scene is as any other cultural scene, it's political and therefore subject to polarization. Uh, does that then risk kind of further resentment and further isolation between these two camps if certain sectors of the population either self-select or feel unwelcome or uh, are not kind of engaged with um, uh, with some of the efforts of the art scene to genuinely uh, diversify their, their offerings? Um, it's a tricky one because especially when it comes down to, you know, self-selection, self-exclusion, that sort of thing, you can't force people to, to engage with these, these conversations. Um, but certainly a lot of the, the museums I visited um, had prompts at some of the beginnings of the, the exhibitions to think about, okay, what does national identity mean? Who do we include in national identity? Are, are we tolerant of, of others' viewpoints? And um I just wondered whether those answers were almost kind of predetermined in, in mm, selecting the kind of audience or, or targeting the kind of audiences that such exhibitions um, had in mind. Yeah, it's a very difficult area in a way to kind of produce a different kind of type of audience. But ultimately, it seems like it's moving in a positive direction in terms of broadening the portraits or the pictures of any kinds of indigenous and unrepresented figures in the museum i think largely that seems to be a good thing um yes yeah um in terms then of your future projects you have a book coming out you say representing the barrios um mm. do you want to talk a little bit about the new book and how does this does this fit at all with this kind of research that you've been put into this article yeah else? thank you <laughs> um <laughs> so the book is uh, it's based in venezuela so um uh, for starters it's a, it's a different country in the region although there are lots of similarities between brazil and venezuela not least political similarities in political polarization um so uh, i've mentioned lula already in his rise to power and i mentioned the pink tide and another figure who was very dominant in the pink tide was hugo chavez who came to power in um in the 2000s um and the book uh, looks at the rise of Chavez and in particular, um, the way in which the barrios or the, the, the slums or the favelas 
became protagonists in the political sphere, on the political stage. So um, when Hugo Chavez came to power, a lot of the discourse that kind of surrounded his, his rise to power was about how the Barrios had, had delivered, delivered him to that power. It was the rise of the poor as historical agents that, that brought Chavez to power and that with Chavez, they were now governing the country in the Bolivarian Revolution. It became known as the Bolivarian Revolution. So my book uh, takes that as a point of departure and goes back in time to the 20th century to look at how historically um, the urban poor and urban poverty has been represented in uh, the cultural imaginary. So film, art, photography, uh, books, um, uh, novels, poetry, and so on. Um, and it looks at the way in which uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, the barrios were very much a marginalized sector of uh, Venezuelan population. They were stigmatized. Um, they were uh, really excluded from the political sphere, from the cultural sphere. Um, and then through the 20th century, uh, the Barrios moved kind of from these marginal sites of the cultural imaginary to its very centre. So that by the end of the 20th century, you have the Barrios featuring not only as the protagonist of Venezuelan politics, as, I, as I've explained, but also um, as the protagonists of many different films and books and um, uh, photographs and um, uh, lots of different kind of uh, cultural paraphernalia. Um, so that's what the book does. So I guess um, in thinking about how it relates to this article, well, you've got um, the city aspect there. So I'm very interested in cities. And, and in a way, the book, what it does is also tells the story of urbanization in Caracas, um, the capital of, of, of Venezuela. So it looks at how artists and filmmakers have looked towards urban poverty and areas of urban poverty and have traced the, the growth of those areas, the expansion of those areas, and the fears and anxieties that accompany the expansion of, of the city. So I'm, I'm always kind of very interested in, in cities and how they're, how they're represented, how they're um, imagined, really. Mm. Um, and then also you've got um, uh, an interest there, as I've mentioned already, in, in identity politics. Um, so the Barrios having become really a key player in, in uh, Venezuelan politics and Venezuelan identity politics, um, which you then see kind of not so much transcribed into the Brazilian context per se. You know, it's not a kind of cut, cut and copy mm -hmm. situation. The nuances and the histories are very different, but you do have a shared kind of history of the rise of identity politics in the, in the 21st century and um, populism or the populist politics that, that goes along with that and the polarization that it then kind of creates in, in uh, the populations of these countries. Fantastic. Well, thank you for that. It sounds like a fascinating read and it's out in May. So I will try and grab a copy when I can. Um, thank you so much, Rebecca, for joining. And I know you're in a different country, you're in miles away and, uh, but, you know, great to have this chat and um, yeah. Thanks so much, Chris. You're Pleasure welcome. to be here. Thanks. Larnab Zagogati's feature can be found in the April issue of Art Monthly and Rebecca Jarman in the current May issue. Further details can be found on Art Monthly's website, including details of how to subscribe. And many thanks for listening.